in a team context, perhaps showing that visually the progress you're making on these different key aspects of your system. Yeah. Would be pretty cool. That would be cool. I'd like to see that also gamified. So it looks like you're unlocking something as you go as well. <laughs> what would you unlock? Like new badges? Yeah, could be, couldn't it? Maybe you even like you get more tools in the <laughs> like you get more features to get unlocked in the tool. Your graph becomes from 2D to 3D. <laughs> yeah. Your progress graph. Yeah, you can unlock a VR mode. I like the idea of withholding developer tools and being like, now that we've made this progress, you can use a debugger. You know, now you can have a co-pilot. <laughs> it's, you learn as you go. Stop writing long dot print. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we can't have people just starting with co-pilot. What's going to happen? Good question. <laughs> this will happen. <laughs> They're going to have it. Yeah, I was going to say. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base, transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. You can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We take requests, just like all the best wedding DJs. Head to gotime.fm slash request to let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Special thanks to Fastly for ensuring Go Time reaches your ears super fast wherever you listen. Check them out at fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the episode about velocity in development. And today we have very special guests, Matt Ryer and Jared, who was either drafted or opted in or accepted, but was definitely not rejected, as we clarified just before we started. <laughs> Somehow I'm here. Hi there. Hello. Hello. Are you all enjoying the longest day of the year on this side of the hemisphere? Yeah, it's getting it's dragging on a bit now. But yeah, it's been good. It's a bit too long for me. What about you, Jared? Longest day of the year, I feel like there's a velocity metaphor in there somewhere, you know? Or the shortest day. Depends when, on which hemisphere you are. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Like if you have sprints that last one day, mm. this is the best day of the year to work. Yeah. Get a lot done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what is velocity? I don't know. What is velocity? Is it speed? Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose really it's about generally how quickly as a dev team you're delivering things. But obviously like 
there's been attempts to measure and then use that to predict. And I think there's been some work better than others, but I think it's definitely an interesting subject and there's not, it's not so simple as you should just do this every time. I don't think. Mm. There's lots of ways that people have tried to measure this, right? Mm. And predict it even. Yeah. Or use predictions in order to determine it. You've done some velocity tracking, haven't you, Matt, with pace.dev? Yeah, well, with velocities, but like the agile practice of velocity, like that practice actually has some merit. So for anyone that doesn't know what that is, you basically try and assign some kind of abstract score to work. And the point isn't really to get it right from like a time perspective or anything. We could talk more about that. But it's about just giving it a rough size compared to the other work around it. And then assuming that you more or less consistently do that each time, you then can just see how many of those points you got done in a certain time period, say two or three weeks. So say you got 200 of these abstract points done in two weeks or three weeks, then you know that in the next three weeks, probably you're going to do another 200. So then you can look at your sized work and spend those 200 points, wherever that is, selecting the work that you, know, that you think is most important. And then if you get good at that, then you more or less do the work that you said you were going to do for that next little bit. And so you can get into a rhythm where that works quite well. Does that make sense? That brings up two questions, Hmm. at least. One is, do you measure things like how many points you spend on writing emails and things like that? And the second one is, how is this different from Agile? Well, to answer those in reverse... This is really the agile practice. One of the agile practices is that, really. This is one of the things you can do like to measure this stuff. You mentioned about like the email and stuff, the other work that you need, and what about debt, you know, sort of tech debt and other fixes and other meetings and all that. Well, it's kind of all comes out in the wash. The idea is you focus on the outcomes and really if you have too much of that work where you aren't being like directly productive, then your score will come down of how much you're able to do. So that's where it shows up, but it's considered normal kind of part of everyday work. So, but it isn't tracked explicitly, you know, so it's kind of considered just background noise and it assumes that that's generally always the same and therefore comes out in the wash. So doing things like also planning your use of points is in same category as emails. Yeah, so the planning stuff is interesting because if you've done it, like I did work on a team once where we had, we consistently did 200 points every two weeks. And they're called points because there is, like one of the important things is that this is, it's an abstraction. So you're not timing things. You're not saying this is going to take me a day to do this work or this is going to take three weeks for us to do. Because doing that is so difficult. Our instincts tend to be way off on that. I think we tend to be quite optimistic in nature. So we kind of imagine probably the best case scenario. And honestly, if you look back after you've been down any project for any length of time, if you look back and realize how complex it ended up being, you would probably never have started it. Mm. And so you almost need that naive optimism at the beginning so it's a terrible time to try and guess how long something's going to take, isn't it? It's the worst possible time. Yeah, it's much easier at the end when you've done it. Right. So <laughs> retrospectives are nice, but yeah. the pointing sessions for me is the Achilles heel of 
this entire concept mm. because it's never right. Mm -hmm. And not only is it always wrong, but it's inconsistently wrong. Now, this is in my experience. Mm. I've heard it back to me as well, so I'm not the only one. Mm. Even my own point scores over time changed based on the wind. I don't know. Like I couldn't even stay consistent because you're like, well, as long as the points are relative, they don't have to be like the actual numbers don't matter. Yeah. But they got to explain like a range that's relative to other ranges. And they've just been so inconsistent for me that it makes, in my experience, the numbers that come out of the tools that give you your velocity meaningless. And we all know they're meaningless, but we look at them and we still try to use them to make decisions. So I'm kind of, mm. I get frustrated because I feel like the, the numbering is so fraught. Yeah. Well, one of the practices that I've seen that I've seen work is they do the basically the card roulette thing. This is where like mm. you sit around and you talk about the issue or the work. Everyone kind of anyone that's got something to say chips in and kind of so you paint a picture, approximate picture, and then you say, okay, three, two, one. Everybody holds up their estimation at the same time, or if you're doing it remotely, everyone hits enter at the same time in the Slack channel to send the estimation. And the idea is influencing each other because mm. often there'll be like a senior person who is maybe much more accurate and much more wise about the system. But, and so therefore everyone will just defer to that person, but actually there's value in the, in the group knowledge. And honestly, like the numbers almost aren't even the valuable bit. It's when everyone on the team's like, that's a three and then somebody will hold up a 13 and you're like, what do you mean 13? And they'll know something that you didn't know and nobody else knew. Right. And that's a great way to kind of just get that out and in the open. And often interests align along those same kinds of lines as well. So they're kind of like quite good for identifying who might be interested in doing particular work or taking on tackling particular problems. Yeah. But it's definitely not perfect. I can see where that might be nice. So you average those numbers out or you just look yeah. for the outliers and say, hold on a second, let's talk more about this. Yeah, so you get a consensus really uh, at the end, mm -hmm. hopefully. And you may compromise a bit. Sometimes you say, okay, so we'll go to a five then. Because if, it's possible that that person's just wrong and everyone's like, no, no, that's not a problem, that's fine. Or we've had that before and it wasn't a big deal. Can you say 13? Like, is that a number that you've given or is that you just made that up to show the drama? Oh, no, no. It has to be Fibonacci, so it's fine. Why does that have to be Fibonacci? We don't make the rules. <laughs> we just follow the rules. <laughs> yeah. But actually, this conversation makes me think of a book that I'm listening to right now. It's called Noise by Daniel Kahneman. And this is the same person who he is, I think, a Nobel Prize winner for behavioral economics. And there's a lot of conversation on biases. And he, I think, is the one who wrote the book about brain system one and brain system two, the one that intuitively reacts to something and then the slower brain that actually processes information and so on. Okay. So noise is a new concept that they are introducing, let's say, that yes, there is bias, but bias is what you said, Jared, in the beginning is consistent. So you said that you the numbers are not always off, that they're like randomly off. Mm. And this is exactly how the book starts with saying that there are, um, let's think of four types of people who play for groups of play darts mm. and then some of them will always hit the middle some of them will always hit to the top right some of them will be scattered and some of them will be like a little bit scattered in some region i forget but basically this is the difference between bias and noise and noise is all those things we cannot measure mm -hmm. and just hearing this book in the light of this conversation is the first time that i thought of all this allocating points and how to 
consider them in the light of this concept of noise. And that's interesting. And so, you know, that research that they did that some judges or judges on average would give easier sentences when it's the beginning of the day and after lunch and harsher sentences right before lunch. This is an example of external noise. The things you you cannot measure, you cannot predict, it's not always the same and it's inconsistent and so on. Right. And it's very interesting to think of uh, all this planning and all this velocity in in the light of noise. Mm. Like, do you always do your sprint meetings in the same time? Does everybody come after lunch? Or if you have, you know, team around the world, then you'll be right before lunch. I'll be right before dinner, like dying to call this a day already. So we'll have different reactions to this, right? Yeah. I mean, that might be a good thing because you won't have consistent bias or consistent noise. You'd have like people in different states of life. I think the the judge example is... After lunch, you'll be always like, Melo, yeah, we can do this. It's okay. It's not too much. And I'll be always like, let's just call it a day. Seven, fine. Seven, right. get this out of the way. So you guys balance each other out. Oh, that's interesting. How do you account for noise in these planning meetings? Yeah, so like external noise is interesting and actually... In these planning sessions, anything that is just outside of what we know about that particular work, like what that particular item is, is kind of ignored. So this is, in a way, is very simplistic for that reason. But it has the benefit of kind of just like forgive, takes it for granted that there's going to be background things and it's going to be random. And so there'll always be something that throws up some unexpected thing, but enough kind of consistently really because it's always happening enough that over time it kind of sorts itself out and and that's the sort of approach it takes to have this try and get these numbers but the fibonacci is interesting if you think about the sequence like you you end up with meaningful gaps because if you just have like a scale of one to ten what would be the difference really between a six and a seven that's quite a difficult thing instinctively i think to know and the idea is you want everyone to be somewhat on the same scale. But you'd know the difference between like a five and an eight, maybe. Like there's five stories. Like you kind of get used to the what these numbers mean in your context. So like update a URL, that's definitely a one. Mm-hmm. Because that's the simplest task you can do probably is go, hopefully, go and find the URL and update it. Famous last words, of course, because that's exactly the point is then you realize, oh, the URL is made up from... Oh, that was an eight. Yeah, there's lots. I thought it was a number one URL, but it's actually an eight. Yeah, because it's made up from we pull this stuff from the database. We've got these environment variables that contribute to parts of the URL. Right. We base 64 encode it based on the position of the sun at that particular moment. (laughs) Stuff like that. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And only Fred knows how to do it, but he quit six months ago. Yeah. And so once we find out where Fred is and we can talk to him, then we'll figure out the right time of day that we run that and then we'll be able to update the URL. So now it becomes a 13. Is that how that works? Now it's a 13? Well, Fred's been clear. He doesn't want us going around anymore. So that's <laughs> we'll respect that. But he didn't mention anything about his cell phone. Like, give him a call. He just changed the number. It better not do. seems like once you get past a certain number, it's meaningless. So I, in my work, I would reduce it down actually to three different buckets. Right. I got rid of points and I said easy, average, and hard. And easy was update a URL. And I thought like, okay, if it takes between one and four hours, eh, easy. Maybe like one to two hours. Like I said, I'm inconsistent. But like that's like in the easy bucket. I could take three easies together and knock them out in the morning. Yeah, you could change URL within two hours easy. Yeah, easy. And then if it was 
slightly more than that. Like, well, here's a feature that might take a half a day to a day, but it, I have a straightforward path from here to there. Yeah. Now it's medium, medium bucket. Or then it's like the 13s that you're talking about where it's like, well, let's sit down and talk about this. Let's think about it. Let's plan it out. This is like a big deal. Yeah. Now you're in the hard bucket. And that actually is beneficial to take that and split it into easies and mediums. But even that system was had its own problems. That's similar to what I know is an approach that if it's eight, it means it's eight working hours, means it's one day, means that it's probably can be broken down to something simpler and smaller. Mm. So 13 is a large number. I think most of the methods that I know won't actually accept a 13, but we'll say just break it down to a five and an eight or five and five and three. That's interesting. You mentioned that eight would be eight hours. So when you've done this, there is a time element to it as well. Specifically, the tool we're using right now at work would say that this is a day of work, roughly. Mm. So that's why this is in my mind like that. But it's also, you know, it's easy to map one point for one hour. But maybe it's, I don't know if it's kind of using the velocity calculation to estimate that that's what that's worth currently. Because mm. the other thing about velocity is you see it, if you're measuring it like that, you see it going up and down. Like if someone takes a week or two weeks off holiday, you see the velocity drop by that much. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it kind of exposes that really. And that's what you'd expect to happen as well. So I wonder if that tool is calculating your kind of recent velocity and then giving you basically an estimate. Because one of the key points I thought really was you're trying to stay away from time. You let the time, you say you stay abstracted from time and let that change, let that adapt, you know, so that you aren't, but essentially just holding people to a fixed scope and fixed time. Right. I mean, time and complexity are definitely related. Even in my system where I talk about complexity in terms of difficulty, I'm still calculating that in my head based on how long will it take me, do I think? And so there's definitely that correlation, but I see where what you're saying, Matt, where the tools should probably focus on the complexity for their velocity numbers and not turn into... How many hours is this going to take so I can hold you to that number, which is something we've all been through from time to time. Mm -hmm. Natalie, what are you okay with telling us what tool you're using so we can talk in concrete? It's called ClickUp. ClickUp. I haven't heard of that one. ClickUp. You put all the tasks and put enumeration on them, and then it has basically any view you ever saw any app do ever. You can look at it as a list, as a Gantt chart, as a workflow, like the calendar. Kind of one thing to do them all. <laughs> Gotcha. Okay. And Matt, with, with Pace, you had a velocity calculation in there? No, in fact, it didn't. But the name Pace, the reason we called it that was, it really came, it was down to this idea really of velocity. You know, Agile is all about sprinting. Like, you know, they have this language and it's constantly like every two weeks you're sprinting and you're constantly sprinting. And so you get into this mode of rushing almost. And honestly, sometimes like the best innovation I've seen and, and I've witnessed has happened at the times when you when you're like there's a lull in things and there's like a space to work and breathe. And it's like a lot of times going slowly is the right speed to, you know, actually building software. Like sometimes it's great, you can run fast because you've got clear little things or you're doing a repeated task maybe a few different times. Say you're integrating into some third-party systems, you want to integrate with all of them. You've got to do a bit of OAuth. You've got a bit of uh, API key stuff, create accounts or whatever. So you 
that's a fairly repeatable piece of work. And so you can go quickly then. And by the way, that kind of work is also very easy to measure and then get, you know, be able to predict on. That's why like, I think some teams will benefit more from that kind of approach because just the nature of the work they're doing may be easily sized and then easily predicted. Yeah. It's also interesting to think about the word velocity. Not in all languages, velocity is different from speed. Mm. And in physics, you use velocity, you don't use speed. And in physics, it makes sense, right? You want to know which way, because this is a difference between velocity and speed. You have a direction. Mm. Right. So physics, it makes sense. But why does this make sense for software and specifically for agile? Yeah. Curious to hear, what is this direction that you all see? Well, you would hope that the, the, there is a, a shared view of where you're going with the thing you're building. So I don't know if it, I don't know if that's what they had in mind. To be honest, mm-hmm. I don't know what that particular practice. I don't know what the direction bit is apart from, you know, you shouldn't just be going fast or just churning out work. It ought to be at least in a certain direction. So maybe it was just that, but I don't know, Jared, if you've got any other ideas. No, I would agree with that. I just think that in software, sometimes we think we have a direction, but we actually are going backwards. Hmm. And so we're going quickly, but in the wrong direction. And I think the more we can get the feedback loop quicker, we can find out whether or not we're headed fast in the wrong way. Because the worst thing you can do, I know one time I was driving home from Colorado overnight, from Colorado to Omaha, and we took a wrong turn. This is back before Google Maps Mm. and GPS. Mm. We took a wrong exit. And we're traveling very fast. Oh, no. It's like a horror film. Yeah, it was. Can we play some spooky music for this story? (laughs) We should. I'll work on that. Not right now, but I'll work on it later. And we had no idea that we were heading the wrong direction for hours. I think it was an hour and a half to two hours. Until (gasps) we saw a sign that said, Welcome to Kansas. (gasps) No, that's the wrong state. Wrong state altogether. Oh, no. And so had we had that feedback loop, obviously, if we had GPS, we would have done much more quickly. And you can, you can course correct and make sure that you're headed in the right direction. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Did, you, did everything turn out all right? No, actually, I died that night. Oh, that is spooky. And ever since then, I've been a ghost. Oh, and you spent your time making podcasts. One time it's somebody from the future. One time it's a ghost. Matt, we're having interesting episodes here. <laughs> I know. We're having a tough time lately. So we actually did drive it overnight. So we drove the entire night in basically Kansas, backwoods. There's no woods there. Back prairie, small roads. And we were lost. And we had to like pull over and ask a gas station attendant which way to go. It was spooky. We There were some deer oh, in the road. no. They're in on it. They're always in on it. And eventually, eventually we, we got home. You both mentioned to the question of uh, what is the direction of the velocity in software or in agile that you want to go forward and you want to have a feedback loop as much as possible, which makes sense. And I'm thinking out loud, trying to make sense of this. So think with me. Okay. In physics, right? When you do a physics exercise, you have a vector and then you break it down to X axis and Y axis, right? And then you see maybe it has the negative and so on. And then you kind of sum it up in some way. And Surely there must be a way to apply this similarly to measuring not just points, which is the speed, but also somehow points per direction, Mm. right? Kind of like a projection of our velocity on whatever we define as axis. And this can be like 
progress on the DevOps and progress on the front end and mm. progress on like backlog. I think that's a nice idea. I mean, you could do it like by by tagging work mm. and you know, then you would have you'd be able to kind of but representing it like it could be really cool sort of representing that in a 3d way because you really are sometimes making the choice of what are we going to invest in what's the most important next thing we need and like if you can visually see that well look we we said that this new public api was very important to us but we haven't put much time into it over these last you know and you can see that visually Mm -hmm. i think that would be very useful Mm -hmm. This would even make sense of the word velocity. This would be very exciting. Yeah, it would. It would. It would be consistent. It's a good startup idea. I think doesn't get have a, have a XY visualization where it shows mm. like what quadrant you're spending more of your commits or your project time or whatever. And I don't think it's mm-hmm. super useful in the GitHub context, but maybe more so. I mean, I guess if in a team context, perhaps showing that visually the progress you're making on these different key aspects of your system yeah, would be pretty cool. That would be cool. I'd like to see that also gamified so it looks like you're unlocking something as you go as well. <laughs> what would you unlock? Like new badges? Yeah, could be, couldn't it? Maybe you even, like, you get more tools in the, <laughs> like, you get more features to get unlocked in the tool. Your graph becomes from 2D to 3D. <laughs> yeah. Your progress graph. Yeah, you can unlock the VR mode. I like the idea of withholding developer tools and being like, now that we've made this progress, you can use a debugger. You know, now you can have a co-pilot. <laughs> it's, you learn as you go. <laughs> Stop writing long dot print. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but we can't have people just starting with co-pilot. What's going to happen? Good question. <laughs> this will happen. <laughs> They're going to have it, yeah. going to say. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents, they impact everyone, not just SREs. They give teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum are responding to an incident. They can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. They have incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency declare and mitigate incidents all from inside slack service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog incident analytics allow you to extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them and at the heart of it all incident runbooks they let you create custom automation rules convert manual tasks into automated reliable repeatable sequences that run when you want you can create slack channels jira tickets zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident now your processes can be consistent and automatic. The next step is to try it free. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. No credit card is required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. You guys know the the free co-pilot train is leaving the station. You guys know that? Are you sufficiently hooked? Oh no, what does that mean? Choo choo! I think it's gonna be $10 a month, something like this, soon. Oh no. It's worth mentioning that in addition to co-pilot, 
So quick explanation what's happening there. Copilot is built on top of an engine that belongs to OpenAI that's called Codex. Codex is available for many people in general, and then you can kind of build your own little Copilot alternative on top of that. And you don't have to pay mm. GitHub slash Microsoft those $10 if you don't want to. And there's many other companies, like 70 companies or so that are building their dev tools on top of this exact a engine. Mm. And they're just doing like the fine tuning, the final little bit of training that's specific to them. Yeah, that is good to know. So lots of alternatives will be popping up, hopefully using the same engine, same knowledge base. Yes. I was curious, you both have been giving Copilot praise off and on on GoTime. Yes. And I'm curious if it's hooked you sufficiently that you're going to sign up and, and pay monthly to use it, or if it's just a novelty that you enjoy, but when it comes to taking money out of your actual pockets, are you going to stop using it? So you usually expect your employer, at least for work tools, to pay for that? That's what you expect? Okay. Yes. It's in Germany. I mean, you have education budget, you have training budget, you have dev tools budget, right? You pay like a license for your IDE. This is not much different from that if you like in my category. Sure. Makes sense. So go hypothetical then if you did not, if you were unemployed, mm. would you pay for it as it is today? Depending on what, if I have any project that I want to build, yes, just for fun, yeah. for hacking, not so much, but I definitely find it useful enough that if I have like a concrete project to build, I will use that because it is useful to me. Cool. Matt, Grafana Labs picking up the tab? <laughs> I'm sure they would. And honestly, I don't do probably enough coding to have it now. Oh. Which is sad to say. Yeah. It also does YAML. It does YAML. Great. I mean, <laughs> it does YAML. There you go. It does anything, really. Are you a YAML engineer now? Well, I asked it in the comments the other day if it was sentient, and it said it was. And I asked it if it was alive, and it said it was. And then I asked it what Ben should have for breakfast, and it said eggs. So, I mean, that seems quite real to me. I don't know. Maybe this uh, Google guy has got, maybe he's onto something. <laughs> well said. This comment line is too short to hold this <laughs> wonderful proof that I'm a sentient. Yeah, that'd be good if it said that. It's very easy to miss the reference of what I said. All right, sorry to derail. Thanks for answering for me. We can go back to velocity now. I've killed the velocity of this conversation. Velocity. Let's pick it back up. I think Copilot helps velocity. You think so? Mm. I think AI generally, like this AI tooling for development will definitely put us in different concepts of what those numbers mean. I think the, the key is being able to stay out of the browser tab and in your editor for things that you know what you want to do, but can't remember syntax or the best way. And you pop over to Stack Overflow or Google to get the how do I do X in this circumstance. Staying, I think, in your editor, certainly. Because I think it's not a big deal to hop over there, but it's just all the distractions that take us out of our flow. You know you got Twitter and a tab. And while you're waiting for that search to load, you tab over or whatever. And now all of a sudden it's 15 minutes later and you've lost all velocity. <laughs> you know, you're out of flow, but you sure know what's going on in the world today. <laughs> and I think it keeping you in that developer mode and not in browser mode or research mode, I think it will help people quite a bit. Yeah. These kinds of tools generify it. But also, if it stays up to date enough, it will not land you on Stack Overflow answers from 2009, which will be a great save of time as well. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you're still responsible for the quality anyway. If, even if Copilot's writing some bits for you, it's still you're responsible for it. You can never say, oh, sorry about this bug, Copilot wrote it. 
you should never find yourself saying that really because you are accepting the work that Copilot's coming up with. But I think that also speaks to the wider idea that the point of like having this abstract velocity is I think one of the key things is about the fact that we have kind of speed versus quality and we've got resources. So we've got like how quickly we can go, who's around to actually help us do that. And we also have quality on this as one of these levers. And if you tie the scope down and say, right, we're going to hit this date and we're going to deliver these features, that's it, they're fixed. The only lever that's left is quality to kind of like, you know, we just can't do a good job with that. Like that's one of the things I like is that as things naturally take over and become bigger than you expected in the beginning, because they always will, more or less, like honestly, basically all the time. As that happens, you can kind of like, it gets soaked up by the velocity and it's sort of like acceptable that that happens. It's sort of admitting that that's going to happen. So, and then I think being flexible on the scope is the remedy to it so that you, yeah, we don't deliver as much, but we deliver on time and the quality stays high. And then we'll add the other features later. I think that way of thinking is so important and st- and quite counterintuitive if you have like a command and control or top-down approach and th- thought process around software. Yeah. How do you convince people of that case that what we need to flex on is scope? Because the business side of many organizations, they want to flex on anything but that. Like they kind of want all three. They want quality, speed, and scope. But I think given... What I've seen, and I think given a lot of people, like if you were a manager and you're like, well, what we're going to go ahead and sacrifice is quality kind of implicitly because we got to get it done and we have to have this feature in and it's got to be done on time. And so what you're sacrificing is quality. But how do you convince people like that's not the best solution? Because that's a hard sell. It's difficult. And what you're really fighting against, or one of the things you're fighting against, is that the sales organization are selling the roadmap very often. So it's already sold. As soon as it hits a roadmap, as soon as there's a hint of an idea, even if it's like next year, mm-hmm. they will be talking about it because they are selling. Like they are, pro- they're selling the future. They're selling the roadmap, and that's where things become then a problem because you know suddenly then customers sometimes will buy now with an expectation of a feature at a particular time. You know, fair enough because they've just been told that. And so then you end up tied like this. So it is a cultural thing that has to be there across the entire organization. It can't, I don't believe you can have like an engineering, just an engineering department that is a sort of agile department, but the rest of the organization isn't. I just don't see how that possibly works because it's all about resources and delivery and sales. It's, you know, it's the whole thing is wrapped up in each other. Mm-hmm. Natalie, have you ever had to have these conversations around cost, time, scope, and quality with regards to demands on your work? Once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> How'd it go? Do you have advice or anything? It's interesting to see this from the perspective of the different times that I had these organizations because the first times I was in such a conversation, I was very junior and I was Everything seemed like I probably say something wrong. I will underestimate. If they say this is important, then it is. But if they say the opposite is important, that also is. And it's probably just me who doesn't. This does not make sense to. And with time, this escalated to a recent conversation that I've had 
So I'm working now at a stealth mode startup, which means we're very few developers and we're doing kind of everybody does everything. And uh, recently I, the past few sprints, I stopped doing backend and I kind of am doing a bit more of the uh, infrastructure things. So specifically now logs. So we have some logs in place and they're okay, but I decided that it's very important to focus now on having good logs because as a young startup, you have successfully reach the milestone that you have your first users and you want to see what they're doing. So you can ask them, you can have interviews, but you also, in my opinion, have to have good logs about that. And so I've been having long discussions on uh, how much time does it make sense to invest into improving the existing logs and kind of making a good thing to rely on moving forward. So very close to home. Mm. Yeah. How are those negotiations going? Like, is that a uphill battle? We have a good culture of disagree and commit, and we have a good culture of you own what you own and for better and worse. So kind of you take the decision and then you are responsible for the outcome. So I own this part. I kind of explained why I think I will disagree and we will all commit to moving forward with me investing more time than planned on that. And as a self-reflection thing, this is like being able to have this conversation and have this stand and also understand that if uh, if it's a bad decision, because whatever, because maybe we should have developed faster, more features to start up and so on, I will have to account for that uh, moving forward. So if anything in my life made me feel senior, it's this. It's a bleep test. Did you ever do the bleep test? It's a bleep test. The watch has been participating in several episodes. There was one episode where we laughed about this. You can ask at the time and it will respond and it did. So now it just, I accidentally pressed start measuring exercise. Oh. So I did the countdown, three, two, one. Oh, right. <laughs> I thought you were maybe doing a... Uh, Attention span, right? What are squirrels? I thought you were playing Excite Bike, you know? <laughs> Some other NES game. It sounded like um, there used to be a bleep test thing at school where you'd have to like run across the hall and then just as you reach the other side, it's time for the next beep. But then the beeps just got faster and faster. So eventually, like... Oh, so like Fibonacci. It all comes back to that. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's just what took me back to that horrible memory. <laughs> we did not have that. Did you have that, Jared? No. Running in the hallway with beeps? Nope. Did you have mandatory military service, though, Natalie? <laughs> ah. That was not measured in beeps, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Makes me a bit scared of Natalie. <laughs> Virtually, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Going back to the point of being, of feeling senior enough to be able to kind of take such a decision, explain that, and being ready to be accountable for that. Mm. And circling this back to what we started talking about in the very beginning of a measuring point. So, this is a good skill you have a little bit at least about yourself, mostly that you are able to evaluate how much time, points, whatever units a, a task will take for you, right? You know that about yourself. After some time working at a company, you know even a little bit better how much time it will take for you in this code base and so on. Mm. And I would say that this is sort of a skill that senior people will have, mid-level people will have, people who have some experience writing code already. But junior people mm -hmm. don't necessarily have enough test data, let's say, to have... Uh, to be able to make such a prediction. Yeah. What are your thoughts of the statement that I'll say that uh, a coding interview for juniors is actually one way of measuring this and kind of understand the value a junior person 
we'll be bringing going forward. Somehow testing the velocity or the... To have like a very rough estimate, but more than nothing. I don't know. I mean, I was maybe going to save it for the unpopular opinions. (laughs) But yeah, I think estimating, trying to estimate how long something's going to take is like... I think we spend a lot of time trying to do it and the results aren't good enough to really justify the effort we put into it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, a, a better approach is let the scope be flexible. Pick the deadline, sure, have the release already, but the actual scope, let that be flexible. And then build teams that you trust that you don't need to micromanage and check on. Build motivated teams, keep teams motivated, put in, put in that effort to do that. And then trust that they're, they're going to work as fast as they can. You know, a lot of the, the dangers of measuring velocity is if things change over time, if things slow down, these numbers start to drop. You could easily interpret that as a, somehow a reflection on the team going slower or something. But you can't really say that. It's much more like it's too chaotic. It could just be things are different. They're working on different things, more unknown stuff. Maybe there are things going on that have slowed it down, but... You wouldn't necessarily see it through that route, I don't think. You'd hope that there's other ways you'd find that stuff out. So I think that approach basically is gets you better results. And you can still commit to some high level. Like you can still make good commitments that you're pretty confident you're going to hit, You know, as long as you don't describe every possible thing and lock, the, lock yourself into it. It's tough. You mentioned scope in your answer. And so you say kind of have a good team, have a clear deadline and define a scope. What is a scope in, when you say? I just mean, yeah. What do you mean? The set of features, the set of things we're going to do. Like we're going to add comments to our tool. So it's going to have comments and reactions and people's profile pictures in there. Now, if as we get underway and we realize we're running out of time, maybe we'll drop the profile pictures. Maybe we'll just focus on getting the core functionality. You know, like we'll prioritize the most useful stuff first so that that at least gets done. And then now we haven't, we've released less than what we wanted to, but what we've released still works. Mm-hmm. And then in the next time we do the profile picks. It's really that. But see, so if though you'd said from the beginning, we're going to release this and it's going to have your profile pictures on it and suddenly people are like sold on that idea, that's where you have then a difference in the expectations of what people are going to get. That's a silly case with the profile pictures, but there are real examples where things will fall out of scope naturally along the way. And mm-hmm. communicating that is, it becomes important for sure. You know. So in the scope, you define also importance, like priority? Yeah, because I think one of the nice things about having those velocity points to spend is it forces you to think, right, what do we want to spend it on? And what could we wait? What could we have later? And it may be that there's like three big things you want, but you can't fit them all in. So you buy two big things and then you've got change left over for a few smaller items. But it forces you to think if we had to like stop after this next sprint or this next time period, like if we have to stop, we want to have something that's just more valuable than what we have now. And if you're thinking of it like that, then you can get there with that. That reminds me a lot of what you said about the buckets. Yeah. Big, important, smaller, faster. Jared, do you have an idea of how many of those you'll get done in a week? Like if you planned it out, could you do like three big ones, two small ones, and five small ones? I certainly could. 
Now, in the past, I was doing soft, contract software, and I would have multiple projects ongoing. And so it would be rare that I would dedicate 40 straight hours to a single client and give them a week. I would split my week up across a few different projects. And so I, I didn't do that very often, but I certainly could. I can extrapolate just based on what my general idea is on the buckets of like a one to two hour thing, a four hour to eight hour thing, and like a multi-day thing to say, here's what we can generally do in a week. Yeah. So that's kind of like you're using your experience of what you've done in the past and then, you know, you're applying that. Yeah, that's like hard-earned experience too because I had a bunch of terrible estimates for years. And it's not that my estimations got better. It's that I became more aware of how bad they were. Right. <laughs> Was it bias or noise? Both. <laughs> Probably both. <laughs> But as a way of speaking with people about the difficulty, not just in the building of the software, but in actually the, the managing of the project, because the one thing that we know right now is that we don't know what we're going to know tomorrow. And so to set up something that stringent is or rigid is kind of a fool's errand. So I would definitely negotiate around scope, Matt, like you do, like what's more, but I don't set the priorities in the case of a client developer relationship of course i'm there as a as a advisor and an advocate and as a teammate but ultimately the customer sets the priorities so i'm here to set the difficulties and talk about what's more important and give advice like eh, are you sure that's the most important thing because x y or z but ultimately they say this is what's most important to me and whatever falls below that threshold in the time period or in the budget they have those things fall out and as long as you can get the negotiation around that and both sides understand that relationship, it's not too bad. It's when the budget and the scope are fixed mm -hmm. and the time, is, everything is fixed. And now you're stuck to what your word was. Well, you said it was a medium thing. Well, it turns out I was wrong and it's actually a hard thing. But we didn't find that out until hours into it. And here's why. Yeah. That's where it gets to be, it can be stressful for both sides because it's their money, it's their time. Yeah, this is why you need that trust. Honestly, like, yeah. if you don't trust the people you're working with, then you just probably shouldn't work with them, basically. The amount of extra work and the constraints you'd have to put in place to make it work. Right. And you end up micromanaging and building software is really hard. It's way more complicated than we even realize. That's why we're always surprised by the nonsense these computers are doing in response to what is perfectly reasonable requests from us poor programmers. <laughs> Chris James messaged into the show, friend of the show, Chris James. And Chris James says, we should check out Dora research, which shows that you don't actually have to trade speed and quality. They're correlated. And that actually building high quality software is the route to mm. getting a, a good feedback, speed of feedback loop. And using great engineering really to achieve yeah. those two things. And it's kind of true, right? That's scope. Like do less, but do it really well. I think that as a rule has definitely served me well in my career, not adding all the features everybody wants. If you have like space and a bit of spare time in the team built in to just let things happen creatively, the little delightful things that people will build into the software makes it such a joy to use compared to just like boring software. Mm -hmm. It really makes a difference to people and your software will be more effective because of that, as well as being more liked, more popular, and hopefully, yeah, they're going to tweet about it and say, 
oh, look at this feature. It's good, isn't it? Is that how you read every tweet in your head? Yeah, it's, it's the only way to stop me from getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of goes back to my wrong direction thing from before. And I think you can be in the wrong direction on two fronts. On the product front, which I think what you're speaking to there, like what features go in, how do we build them? But then also technically, like if you're just trying to move fast, you are going to accumulate technical debt because speed is the desire. And so everything else be damned. And so I'm not sure if this is the best way of building this, but I don't have time to think about it. We got to get it out there. And so instead of actually analyzing and deciding and maybe spiking out a few different options on an architecture, you're like, nah, we're just going to do it this way. We got to move on. And that's where you can really shoot yourself with regards to the technical architecture. Whether or not the feature you're building is the right one. Yeah. It's kind of orthogonal to that. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Like, you should learn where to spend the time. This episode is brought to you by LaunchDarkly. Fundamentally change how you deliver software, innovate faster, deploy fearlessly, and take control of your software so you can ship value to customers faster and get feedback sooner. LaunchDarkly is built for developers but empowers the entire organization. Get started for free and get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. And by Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. The platform is a versatile Kubernetes operator for handling cluster deployments, the GitOps way. And I'm here with Kelsey Hightower, angel investor and advisor to Acuity. Kelsey, why are you excited about Argo CD and what's happening here with Acuity? When I think about Argo CD, it represents the transition from traditional CI/CD, you know, you have a big server with a built-in workflow engine, and you could only do what that system can do, whether it's Jenkins, whether it's Spinnaker, you name it. Those things are tend to be all-in solutions, and they're all predicated on having like their own built-in workflows, UIs, and ways of doing things. And then when I think about kind of the Argo CD, that whole open source movement kind of backed by the ideas we saw in the Kubernetes world, which was each of those steps is nothing more than just a step in a workflow. And after 10, 20 years of doing CICD, how best to represent those steps? And it turns out this whole container thing is probably the best way to have little snippets of logic sit at each of those steps in the workflow, and then you can kind of exchange them and share them to build any pipeline you want. So the way to look at this is Kubernetes has never had a workflow engine or tool. And so when you think about kind of Argo workflow or Argo CD, which is kind of a specialized workflow, kind of attacking the how do you roll out software problem? That's the way I would think about it. So if you're all in on Kube and you like the Kubernetes ecosystem, then you kind of have a choice of workload types. And I would probably just say it's another workload type you can put in your toolbox. So if you got something that can benefit from a workflow engine and reuse the logic that you already have in containers, it kind of feels like the perfect fit. The perfect fit. All right. Thanks, Kelsey. Well, the next step is to head to acuity.io slash changelog. They are inviting all of our listeners to join the closed beta. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. There's times to go slowly. And that's what experience brings is like, these are ideas that need to percolate a while. We need to let them settle down and keep thinking about them in the context of what, we're, what else we're doing. 
before we just jump into it. And you can you do learn to then future-proof designs. Like one example I always use is a Boolean field. If you've got like a is active field and it's a Boolean true or false, consider what you might achieve and in the future potentially by replacing that with a status field that's a string that has active or inactive in there. So yes, it's less efficient, right? Because now it's a string and not a number, but suddenly you have more options there in the future. And so I, I tend to kind of be quite future-proof in my designs because I like to give my future self options because I know I don't have the answers now. I may know more later. And then I don't want to have painted myself into a corner. The other side of that, the non-moderation side of that, though, is over-architecture, right? Because now you're like generifying everything and being ready for any circumstance. Yeah. And that can actually go against you in the long run as well. So finding that balance, I think your example is a great one where it's a small decision that can be future-proof, but it's not like going to cost you a bunch of extra time right now. But we have that desire of like, I'm going to engineer this so it handles any use case Mm-hmm. And yeah, then you're done. <laughs> you've, exactly. Yeah, you've lost the game right there. If it does everything, it doesn't do anything. Basically, right? <laughs> exactly. It's not doing anything in a way. Yeah, that's right. Of course, you go too far with it. And I think there is kind of experience there, but there probably are like techniques that people have come up with that allows you to sort of think about things. And I know of a few that I've heard of in the past, but honestly, for me, it's always been instinctive. So, how about you? Jared and Natalie, like, do you find that there's a science here or is this more like feels instinctive and gut feel? So I will refer to somebody else whose name is escaping me, but strange name. He has a rule. I wonder where that's from escaping me. Yeah. I mean, whose parents named them escaping me. Yeah. Cool name. Actually. Now I thought about it. Check him out. Escaping me.com. <laughs> I hope that's not some sort of weird <laughs> website. Don't check it out. Jared didn't tell you. Yeah. There was a rule I heard. Hmm. A way of making decisions, because that's really what this is. Like, do I invest more time here to get it right? Or do I do the quick and dirty thing to move on or whatever? Mm -hmm. And he says their team categorizes decisions into two buckets, easy to reverse and hard to reverse. Mm. And if it's easily reversible, well, then you just pick a choice and move on. But if it's actually a thing where it's like, if we have to back out of this, Mm. it's going to be a lot of pain. Now let's slow down and spend the, the extra time. I think that's a useful mm. scientific way of thinking about it versus just mere intuition. Natalie, did you have any thoughts? I think I know what you described as the one-way door or two-way door, the way Jeff Bezos introduced it. Okay. That's who it was. It was my friend, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> He's also in the US, right? You know each other. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree that this is a good way of deciding whether to slow down and evaluate or go fast because this is reversible. This is making a lot of sense. And in the book, the noise book, they talk about taking decision based on a hunch. So this is connecting to me, Matt, to something that you said that uh, you, you kind of do this intuitively. And they are saying that taking intuitive decisions are not is not always a good way to go about things. And another interesting example that they bring is sort of like a mini research that they did at some insurance agency where they they took the management and they said, give us some 10 scenarios and we'll give your different evaluators 
to evaluate that. And then let's see what would be the price for the premium that they might charge and also 10 cases and what would be the claim that they would pay. And they asked them, the, those managers, what do you think will be the variance? Like how much different would it be from each other? And so if you're asked this, maybe in the context of Agile, what do you think that your developers, how different would be their evaluations of a task? 10%, 100%. Sometimes they are off, but you sort of coalesce eventually as you learn from each other. Mm -hmm. But what did they find? So this was expected to be something like 10% variance and it ended up being 55%. Right. And this translates to a lot of money that is being lost in mm. specifically in the world of insurance agents. And it's mm. you made a very good point, Matt, saying that people learn from each other and then compare and then kind of find the center because this is exactly what was recommended there in the book as how to avoid such a big difference is actually not just give guidelines and ask all the employees to follow that when they need to do their evaluation and take their decision, but also to share knowledge mm -hmm. and also to come open-minded with the fact that even if your evaluation is like double or half than the other person, it does not mean that either of you is wrong. It means that it's something in the process. Yeah. And honestly, I think that sounds great because you often see like a junior person, their numbers will be higher often because, or sometimes lower, but, but they'll often be slightly away from the, where the sort of mean meet because, you know, they don't have the same context. They don't have the same information. It's most interesting when someone's way off as an outlier and it's the conversation you have about that work that's the really valuable bit in any estimation sessions for me. Mm -hmm. So you sit around all together and say, okay, we're going to add this functionality. I suppose we'll use that integration. We'll do that thing. We've got this mechanism before we've done something like it. We'll use that. Then there's some UI work. Someone might say, oh, but what about this? Don't forget, it's got to work in the Slack integration as well. And you're like, oh yeah, okay. You know, so you sort of then get everything out that's just fresh of mind and then and then you have an idea of that work. And honestly, just that little process of everyone chipping in was so valuable. And often you'd learn so much. Mm -hmm. You definitely see a, a wider image. So my unpopular opinion would be keep wait. estimations. Hold on, session. we got to play the music. Wait, wait. Oh yeah, should we do it? I actually think you should probably leave. My unpopular opinion is we should keep estimation sessions, but throw away the estimations. Mm. The sessions themselves are great. They're so useful to talk through all the work, get all the ideas out, see where the interest lies of who's going to maybe do the work. But the estimations are useless, pretty much. <laughs> that sounds brilliant to me. I like the way you frame that, and I think it's a smart idea. Yeah. So I think this is not an unpopular opinion, but just a good idea. Well, I sure hope it makes it to the Twitter feed. <laughs> we'll see well we'll see because i'll be keeping an eye on it like a hawk have you done an unpopular opinion before or is this your first one ever because it's gonna be wildly popular by the way i've done one and i've regretted it ever since and i knew i would so i knew before i said it i was going to regret it i then said it at thinking i'm going to regret this and then later now i regret saying it do you know what i mean so 
I do. That's utter. Yeah. I call that utter. Utter. What about this one? Do you regret saying this one? No, I think this is all right, this one. That's going to be popular. Might not be unpopular, but still a good opinion. See what the people say on Twitter. They're, let them decide, really. Yeah. Yeah, they're brutal out there. They are. They'll tell the truth, you know, when you ask them a question. They sometimes tell you the truth in a DM that you've not asked for as well. Can happen. <laughs> I've had that once or twice. Natalie. I love doing Twitter polls. I also have an unpopular opinion. Mm. Books that are meant to teach people new concepts but are not technical ones should be shorter. I find that there's many interesting things to read out there. So I've been trying to read the book about growth mindset. And the idea of what is this growth mindset is being explained very well, very early on. And then the rest of the books is just different examples. And I stopped following at some point because just explaining the same thing again and again and again in a different way. And I am in this limbo that I don't know if I'm going to lose any other information. Will they introduce anything new in the end of the book? Yeah. Or not? Should I keep reading it? Should I keep listening to it or not? Or is it just going to be more examples? So books should be either more clear, structured, where is the new information? Or just be shorter because it's an introductory book. I like this. I don't want to advertise, you know, I don't get anything for this. Let me just sign up and so I can do a referral program. But there's a thing called Blinkist, which essentially is this, mm. the idea is it takes a book and distills it down to 15 minutes the key concepts, the most important thing. The idea being like, if you really, if it really resonates with you, you'll then go and read the book, I guess. But it maybe satisfies that what you've said, which is there's so many ideas out there. And of course they've got to pad it into a full book in order to be able to sell one unit. But do they? Well, that's what they do. You want to pad that and then somebody goes and summarizes that for you. Yeah. Just make it short. Make it to the point. Yeah. Make it a booklet. Well, then it's a blog post, right? Like they can't sell you that blog post. Would you pay forty pounds for a blog post? If you have pounds, exactly. No one else has pounds on here apart from me. I'd happily lose forty pounds for a blog post. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new exercise based. I'm listening to books and an Audible. It's usually ten euros per book. It's not forty. Ten year. Oh, that's quite a lot. Audible too. <laughs> Almost flat rate, yeah. Oh, I see. So for all books. Practically. It's very hard to find a book that is not 10 years. But they're not all the same. Oh, that's not $10 per book then. That's $10 for the entire library of the year, which is a pretty good deal. No. No, no. She still has to pick the book. It's per book. Oh, it's still per book. Okay, I'm back to it being a bad deal. I mean, maybe there's different programs. I don't know. Aren't there some books that are better than others, though? Yeah, I don't know. I have yet to come across a book that is not... 10 years. Mm. Sometimes they have sales that something is cheaper or for free, but most of the books you find there is like one unit of credit and that costs you 10 years. I don't want to be a salesperson for that company, but surely there's already a subscription program where you can just unlock unlimited. Blankist. I'm not saying that one again, but the Audible, order, Audio, what's, I nearly said the brand name. Audible. Don't say the brand name. Oh no. <laughs> We've advertised them now for free. Jared's going to be livid. You said Blinkist. Yeah. Yeah. I also said, I don't want to advertise them <laughs> because Jared tells me. They pay good money to advertise on podcasts, just not ours. So go ahead, say their name. So we're giving it for free. Yeah, well. Yeah, but it devalues it then, doesn't it? We already ripped into Jeff Bezos earlier. It's a Berlin-based company. Oh. Audible is? Blinkist. Oh. Oh, Blinkist. Now we're saying they're both their brand names over and over again. Have you heard of that company before then, Natalie? That app. I know this great podcast. 
Mm. <laughs> it's called Go Time. <laughs> it was the home where the invention, the great invention of Jared's, where it was, a, what was it? You'd lose weight by reading a blog post. Or it, in order to unlock the blog post, you have to hit certain exercise goals, something like that. Yeah, I think that would be motivating. Yeah. Fit blog or something. You know, it's like a paywall, yeah. but it's more of like a fit wall. It's a pain wall. Fit wall. That's good. Fit wall is the name of it. Pain wall. I actually like that. No, fit wall. Yeah. Fit wall. That's the name. Okay. Get the dot com quick. We're going to solve the obesity epidemic. Remember where you heard this first. Yes. Changelog doesn't own this idea, does it? Just because we've said it on this. How does that work legally? Fit wall, yes. All your IP are belong to us. Well, I'm going to see if I can get the domain name. <laughs> I can't. Sure. Is this your unpopular opinion? No, I have one. I have one, though. You have one. Please share. Last time I was on the show... Mm-hmm. We had a little debate around the terms we software people use to describe ourselves. Mm. Coder, yeah. programmer, yeah. developer, engineer. Cool dude. Cool dude. Yeah. And since that show went out, I've had lots of follow-ups from people kind of affirming what I said on the show, which is that everybody kind of has different definitions for what these are. And so there's no consistency. And so it's kind of meaningless to a certain degree. However, I did learn that in Europe, engineer is like a protected class or something. Like you have to have a degree of some some kind, which is a much more formal definition of engineer. I'm not sure if that's software engineers or just engineers or both. Mm. But I learned that from somebody on Twitter. So that's cool. Lots of conversations, people telling me that it means they mean different things to them. We did a poll on Changelog's Twitter about which of those four do you prefer to be called? Ooh, can we guess? Yeah, go ahead and guess. So what are the four options? It was coder, programmer, developer, engineer. Oh, right. I think engineer is like the most serious sounding. So if you're really serious about building, you know, because proper software engineering is really hard. Like, it's basically impossible, isn't it, if we're honest? <laughs> It's basically impossible. It's just this side of impossible, which is why we still do it. Right. So I think that might be the choice if the changelog audience are kind of like quite serious about their work. Right. What do you think, Natalie? I would say developer. Okay. Good guesses because those two tied for first place. Mm. 42% each. Yeah, interesting. And this was a pretty good sample size. We had a few hundred people reply, so it wasn't like a GoTime FM poll where we get 23 votes. <laughs> Come on, people, follow GoTime FM and vote on our Unpop polls. We need you. We need your help. Mm-hmm. The Go community depends on your votes. Yeah, and how am I going to get a hair transplant if we don't get more listeners on GoTime? <laughs> so come on, everyone, listen in. Listen harder. <laughs> Go and listen to the ads twice. Yeah. Does that work? And answer the poll. And answer the poll, yeah. Okay, so 13% of respondents were happy to be called a programmer. Mm-hmm. 3% of respondents want to be called coder. Really? So. Coder? No one wants it. Yeah. In Leslie, Leslie Lamport's video that we we're referring to, he defines coder, coding, and programming as two different things. Right. And this was something that people said to me was that coding is like typing and developing or programming is much more than just typing. So my unpopular opinion, this is a huge setup. We're going to cut this part out of the video. My unpopular opinion is that it's inappropriate to compare coding to typing. So if you're a writer, Hmm. 
and you do all the things that writers do. Think of the story, the characters, you know, your ideas, yeah. design the story, etc. And then you go to write. Yeah. Those are two processes. That's fair with me. If you're a developer and you go doing all the things that developer is going to do, plan, make decisions, test things, estimate some points wrongly, whatever you're going to do. And then you go to write the software. Yeah. I think it's inappropriate to say that the coding part of a developer's job is akin to the typing part mm. of a writer's job because typing and coding are different. It's the writing part. So a writer writes, okay? Typing is just like a thing that goes mechanically between you and a machine, but yeah. a coder codes, a developer codes. And so there's more, coding's much more than just typing. I think it belittles it mm-hmm. to compare it to typing. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. I, when I first read that, I thought they, meant, they were saying that coding is really like the, is just getting it into, the, it's just the act of getting it into the editor. And the programming is happening outside of that and is the bigger thing. But you're right, definitely between like typing and coding. I mean, you have to type in order to get coding to happen as well. So I think, yeah, that is interesting that they have these. But I'm surprised Coder just got 3% because... Nobody wants to be a coder. Honestly, I I thought that sounded the coolest, but I I might be out of... (laughs) Have I reached the age now where I don't know what's cool? It might be an age thing because I think programmer is like an older term Mm -hmm. that I think probably people who've been around longer. I mean, it used to be programmers write programs, but then programs became apps Mm -hmm. and programmers kind of became developers. I don't know why or when, but it seemed like that kind of happened. And programmers fallen a little bit out of trend, yeah, out of vogue. But coder is like, nobody wants to be that. I think to me, when I hear code, I'm thinking of code monkey. Mm. I heard this term so many times in the negative context of somebody saying, I want to do more than being a code monkey. And I think this could be a reason. That's a good point. Maybe that's why people associate it with that, that concept of like, just do, take a ticket and do the coding, you code monkey. Yeah. And like, we don't want to be put in that box. That might be true. That might be what it is. That could be it. I understand that. But in a way... I quite like being modest, but then I'm in a, I'm in a position where I can be. Well, obviously not everyone can just be immediately modest, but like you have to sell yourself as what I mean, like as a, when you get into your career and stuff. But I like it when like you see people that have invented core concepts that we all use in their bio just as programmer. It's very understated and I think that is quite cool. So it may come back. It may be retro, hopefully. Right. I would hope so. We'll see. But I quite like developer because... It sounds like it's developing. It's never finished. An engineer, you're almost like at some point it'll be engineered and then it's done and it's delivered. Mm-hmm. Whereas there's something nice about the fact you're telling people like, this isn't going to be finished. So get that out of your head now. This thing is going to drag on. <laughs> well, when I think of engineering, I think of like building a bridge, which is very much rooted in years and years of physics mm-hmm. and math and like metal known equations and we can engineer a bridge and then it's done we know exactly what it's capable of and what it will buckle under and i don't feel like software is ever like that like we're learning constantly it's like yeah it's more like that whole flying a plane or yeah changing it while it's flying or something no it's true it's because like the speed at which we can iterate and that feedback loop actually which is one of the points came it's come up a few times throughout this like that having a feedback loop and having a short feedback loop, like that is what enables you to move quickly because you can try things, walk back if you got it wrong, you haven't committed loads of resources, 
to it because it was just a small thing anyway so you don't feel bad you can then correct course i think that working at that kind of resolution is is the way to do it and that's why it's so hard to estimate stuff when none of us are doing anything we've really done before we're probably doing something no one's ever done before in lots of ways and so we should give ourselves a break and tell our managers to shut up (laughs) perfect way to finish this episode about velocity gentlemen thank you for joining that was fun i don't know if you can hear on the outside there's the firework of uh, berlin celebrating the sunset of the longest day of the year oh wow it's done the day's done oh congrats berlin it happened it's been a pleasure spending it with you oh what a a long day but we talked to you all day felt like it throughout the sunset it's been a pleasure (laughs) there's not two people i wouldn't rather spend an entire long day with so thank you very much Took ages to say that, but fine. All right, that is go time for this week. Do you have your own opinions on estimates, velocity, or agile with a capital A? Let us know in the comments. There's a link to the discussion thread in your show notes. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and subscribe now. If you haven't already, visit gotime.fm in your favorite web browser for all the ways. If you're a longtime listener and get value from the show, pay it forward by recommending us to your friends. In fact, I'll cut you a deal. If you email a solid GoTime recommendation to three friends and BCC Jared at changelog.com, I'll send you a free pack of Changelog stickers. Too easy, right? Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for having our CDN back, to Breakmaster Cylinder for these banging beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next time on go time. So my unpopular opinion would be keep wait. estimations. Hold on, we gotta play the music. Wait, wait. Oh yeah, should we do it? You might have your... Is it live or preview? Might be in preview mode. I might have to sing again. It is live because the first one worked. It sometimes stops working. I don't hear so it. So if I switch to preview, it does play. <laughs> okay, switch back to live. Matt, maybe you can carry to sing live. Matt, sing it for us. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll insert it in post production. Just imagine Matt singing to us. Dun 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 baum. Dun Popular opinion. There you go. Mix that in. I actually think you should probably I leave. really think you should quite leave right now. <laughs> I actually think you should leave. <laughs> you believe what? You what? Is this what Matt's saying? Have I been hearing it wrong all this time? No, he says two things. He says, you believe what? I actually think you should probably leave. Yeah. <laughs> I don't say you believe what. I just say you what. Oh, you said you what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, um, in the original, I go, you what? Right, like that. And then when Breakmaster Cylinder remixed it. Yeah. They changed it. So it actually goes, you what, really fast. So they've changed the you what, if you listen to the two versions. Wow. There you go. I should go back to the original. Did you prefer that? I don't, didn't I? Sounds like you did. Maybe this can be an opinion. Yeah, this is. (laughs) BMC ruined my song. No, he didn't ruin it. They made it better.